welcome to the State of Shakespeare. My name is Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we have two actresses from the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, Maria Cristina Oliveras and Nance Williamson. Maria Cristina is appearing this season as Jaques in As You Like It and as the Scottish King in the Scottish play. Nance Williamson is a longtime company member at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival and is also appearing in As You Like It and in Macbeth. Now, this is a very original take on Macbeth. As I understand, this is a three-woman Macbeth. Is that correct? Right. Lee Sunday Evans, the director, and Davis McCollum, the artistic director, had this idea of framing the play. It's not really from the witch's point of view, but it's the witches as storyteller of the play. So it's a storytelling of the play where we take on the characters as we tell it. And it's also because it's three women, you hear the play differently, or at least it feels like we're telling the play differently, certainly, than in a normal, normally cast production. So is there original text and Shakespearean text interspersed? No, it's all Shakespeare text, although it's been trimmed so that it's a very lean production. And then there's been original music by Heather Christensen. She's taken Shakespeare language and set it to music. So there's a kind of a Patty Smith, Janis Joplin vibe to it. Well, that's got to present some really interesting staging challenges. A three-woman Macbeth is pushing the envelope of the Chamber Shakespeare movement. And I imagine it takes some real theatrical ingenuity to pull it off. So what are some of your favorite magical staging moments? Oh, that's tricky. I mean, what, what was wonderful about working with Lee is because it was it's three people in this huge space. She came in with a specificity of movement and she's a choreographer as well. So she thinks in terms of the space and the storytelling in a really interesting, dynamic way. As far as favorite moments, I mean, I particularly enjoy when we implement the murders, how we've kind of really pushed the audience to use their imagination. So all our kind of work, it's not on the nose. Nothing is as is, if that makes sense. Like we're not actually taking a knife and making the gesture of choking someone or striking someone. It's it's really kind of implied images. And then the audience takes the images as they will and goes to wherever their minds kind of take them. But all of it, because it's so choreographed and precise, lends itself to something always kind of really electric and, and, and energized throughout, which, which is also on us to, to keep it that energized among the three of us within the space and with the audience. So from a directorial standpoint, you have three actresses playing, I imagine, how many characters? We've merged a lot of things like Lennox and Angus and Malcolm. It's not important who the character is that's speaking. It's what's important in this production is what's being said. It's about how do you get that information to facilitate the, the storytelling. And with all Shakespeare, it's always like you are what you speak. It's all in the language. But in this one in particular, you are not only what you speak, but I, what I call you. Enter yeah. Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Like, now you are that. Or Noble Banquo. We kind of toss the ball to each other in that sense. And we discovered, and I think we're still exploring, how to, to really make it clear that this is a different character without making huge character distinctions as far as a physicality shift or a vocal shift. Um, like there's no limps or patches. <laughs> How do you make the distinction other than just tagging it? There's a change in energy. There's a change in how the other two relate to you, how you hold yourself, but it's not fully fledged 
characterization. It has a subtle movement. And the interesting thing that Lee was so brilliant at is, is in the doubling. You know, I do step into other characters as well, even though I'm playing the Scottish king. You know, I play the doctor, and that's an interesting doubling of Macbeth observing his wife in this state of madness and seeing her descent. I got to describe myself in battle and my kind of prowess as a warrior. So, and, and we don't know what the audience will bring in and read into those doublings, but the doublings are subtly there in a way that I think are really kind of provocative and, and thrilling in a way, especially when you see Lady Macduff and Lady Macbeth, you know, in the same track. And at some point or two, I play, you know, someone who kind of emerges from the shadows and you're actually quite not sure, oh, yeah. is it the Scottish King? Is it the murderer? Is it, oh, a, a friend? Is, yeah, we're playing with a lot of, that's on our side as far as the mystery of who is without it hopefully being confusing. But, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes Shakespeare's just a little confusing. Sometimes. <laughs> you know, even when I see a traditional Shakespeare, I certainly take a look at the synopsis. <laughs> it's been said of the Scottish play that actually performing it gets into your psyche and changes you somehow. Have you noticed that that's true? He is hard. I am not going to lie. And the conversations that we've had around him and with what's going on in the world. And, you know, I have to always go back to the sense of he is a good man. He starts out with the best of intentions. We all do. And so hopefully we can all identify with that. And we also have these imaginations that if we actually follow through on a lot of the things that we imagine, we would find ourselves in a very, very dark hole. But most most human beings, so most of us have the filter not to kind of go forward. And I think what's really important about him is once he starts on that path of blood, he doesn't want to continue on, but he's found himself there and must move on to get through, um, if that makes sense. And unfortunately, he ends up being a tyrant. It's a very tricky psychology to, to traverse. But I think important that the seeds of it, as I said, that we can all identify with those initial seeds of, oh, I want this thing. Can I do this terrible deed in order to do it and get it? And then what happens when we find ourselves just over on the dark side? It always strikes me that he does want this thing, but when he gets to be the king, does he know what that means? And I think there's a lot of people who can say that in this day and age. They want something, but then they get it and they're like, oh, (laughs) It's not what I anticipated. Oh, yeah. Well, and even any degree of success, I feel like people who attain a certain degree of, oh, I thought I wanted this or I thought this would make my life better or it's, it's, all, it's never what people anticipate, you know, the biggest of successes even. And with him in particular, too, actually, I don't know, you know, yes, he wants to be king, but without his wife, without this prophecy... I don't actually think he would have moved forward on any level. Absolutely not. It's, and he talks about the bar ropes. He doesn't feel comfortable as the king. You know, I think it's one of those things, oh, I, I should want this, right? I mean, I'm at the height of my, I'm, I'm a warrior. I'm the golden child. Everybody's telling me I should want this. My wife is telling me I should want this. Society's telling me this is like the highest level I can achieve. But whether he wants it in his soul, I don't think. It's the spurs around him and all the kind of like those witches it's like when you read a horoscope do you either make it happen or do you allow it to happen he needs all those different spurs in order to to do the deed marie christina that's a great segue to a speech that jim and i are really interested in and if you'll allow us to put you on the spot please (laughs) you've hinted at the sentiment that macbeth is getting at in act one scene seven in the famous speech that begins if we're done yeah would you favor us with a a reading of that absolutely sure Great. This is Marie Christina Oliveras performing Macbeth, or I should say, reading Macbeth from 
Act 1, Scene 7. If it were done when it is done, then twere well. It were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. But here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, and as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath worn his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a naked newborn babe, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which leaps itself and falls on the other. Thank you so Thank much. You. Then my lady, enter my spur. <laughs> I'm not going to do it until she tells me. God bless her. Oh, my God. I love that line, surcease success. It's so great. I love that word. It's such a fascinating speech. Yeah, no, it's one of my favorites. It's definitely one of the, because it's all about his, the equivocation of it, it's definitely one of the trickier ones of his especially because it happens so early on. I mean, the thing with this play, it's so episodic. And, you know, in life we have these, like, huge funerals and huge weddings, these, like, huge epic events that happen, like, you know, over time. This one, it's like big murder, big funeral, coronation, another murder, got to murder more. You know what I mean? It's just big epic event, epic fast, event, and nobody... throwing full on into high stakes from, from the beginning. I mean, obviously always high stakes within the theater, right? But I mean, these are like epic situations of tragedy right from the beginning. But that's what's really interesting about doing this play too at Hudson Shakespeare Festival is nature actually and wrangling the daylight at the beginning of this play and a, and a play that starts so dark. And it's an interesting evolution because as it, you know, as the night goes on, it gets darker and uh, the second act is much more kind of focused and in when we re-enter the, the witch's realm and all that. You know, Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, it's under a tent. And the first two previews, mm. there was wind, gale force wind. Yeah. And oh. so it was haunting performing the play. I mean, we, we really had to muscle it up and try to be heard above this wind that would just kind of blow us and the audience. And it seemed, you know, come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts and sex me here, that every time there were those kinds of things where the characters are calling on forces beyond them and that Mother Nature was entering the tent, it had a, such a connection to the play. There's a, there's a scene where the old man and Ross are talking about how nature has changed because of the death of Duncan or what happened. Yeah. Night. And there's you know, the horses ate one another and that the earth did shake and there's husbandry in heaven. The, their candles are all out. There are no stars tonight. And so that there's a connection about doing this play that Mother Nature is an uncontrollable force that just becomes a surprising part of the performing of this play. It's a surprise every night. 
who our scene partner is going to be tonight, mm -hmm. whether it's, yeah. yeah. Well, there's certainly an otherworldly quality just by the witches themselves. But then you have nature is a part of it as well when, you know, the forest comes walking towards the castle. Nancy, you've played Lady M before in previous productions at the Hudson yeah, Valley yeah. Shakespeare mm -hmm. Festival. What are you learning about the play coming at it this time from a different angle? Well, you know, it's so thrilling being able to speak language that you don't get to speak very often. And so it's different when you hear it. And it's also amazing to be able to say some of this language that you just ordinarily don't get the chance to say a lot of the time. And it's interesting about what ambition is. I think I could make a general enough statement between male and female in terms of ambition and in terms of how we look at things. But I play, my track, the two big parts that I play are Banquo and Macduff. So when Macduff hears of his family's slaughter at the hands of Macbeth, mm. how a man grieves, the initial slap in the face of hearing that your wife has been killed and your children have been killed, and how men grieve and how women grieve, it's interesting. And Orlando happened, a huge event that happened country-wise that the play spoke to. And also there was a family member that was lost to one of our castmates. And so when you're kind of doing a scene where you're hearing about loss or hearing about brutality to those that you know and those that you love, those things work on it in such a way that it's, it's quite personal because of how I'm connected to those things. But also it feels very collective. It feels like a very shared kind of grief. And so the speech resonates. Now that you've had an opportunity to sort of live in this different skin, and come to a different understanding about coming to terms with grief and also ambition. Are any of these words useful to you? Do, do you find that you are, are coming closer to embracing them or rejecting them? I think that it's always as difficult as it is sometimes. I think it's our job as actors to embrace always, is to kind of say yes to. It's like if you were going to play Hitler, if you were really having to play a terrorist or a tyrant, you have to kind of step in those shoes so there has to be a willingness to go to those places that our, our moral compass tells us is wrong. But we have to kind of not have a judgment about that in the parts that we play. And I mean, I think that's the great gift of being an actor. The great challenge is, is to kind of say, how did somebody do this? Mm -hmm. If I have to play this, I have to accept it, first of all. And I have to try to understand it. It seems like such a, a good practice as a human being to kind of look at somebody else's behavior that you don't like and kind of go, what are they thinking that makes them do what they do? Why are they, why are they behaving? Why are they saying that? Why are they? So it makes you not just fight against. It makes you try to understand. And I feel like I'll be a better human being if I practice that more in my own life. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's one of the beauties. And I think you're watching him struggle with that very thing as well. I mean, I think that's one of the things about Shakespeare is he sort of talks you through or he walks you through that moral conversation that these characters are having with themselves. Well, we were talking about that too, that Macbeth is so different than, you know, Richard III or Iago mm -hmm. or somebody who just kind of, you know, he, he has a conscience. Like Maria Cristina was saying, he has... He knows he has yeah. a fear of what he's going to do because he knows it's wrong. Yeah. We still have judgment here. We yeah. still have judgment here. Well, and, uh, yeah, the deliciousness of like a Iago or Richard III is they delight in their villainy. You know, 
that Beth is tortured by yeah. this yeah. throughout, even through killing Macduff. Oh, I mean, even through to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where it all, I mean, it's it all comes down in a way. So many interesting questions. It's just an endless subject, this play, but whether Macbeth's moral anguish and then the decision to go through with it makes him more or less of a monster than, as you say, uh, Iago or, or Richard II, who delight in their villainy from first to last. I mean, I empathize with him just being inside it, too. It's It's like, Jesus, I really have gone down this path. There is nothing more I can do. You know, I, I cannot stand still. I have to move forward in this blood that I've started shedding. And, and blood has gets, it gets more blood and the paranoia of keeping the power and who's out there, who's on my side, who's not. Sounds like House of Cards. Yeah, no. I'm, it's just, it's a dangerous, dangerous world where blood is in the air all the time. And there was something too, we were talking that we were reading that James Shapiro book, 1599, that at the time the gunpowder plot had happened. Mm -hmm. And so the whole notion of equivocation, where you're saying one thing to the powers, to the earthly powers, and meaning something else because God allows you to do this. You know, Shakespeare was writing this for James, who was from the Banquo line, and James was also interested in witches. And so to kind of blend these threads in this play, he really found a lot of timely references that spoke directly to him that still speak to us. Now, Maria Christina, you're a teacher and you've served on the faculty at Yale and Fordham Lincoln Center, UC Boulder, Primary Stages, Stella Adler Conservatory, and a number of other actor training programs. And as a teacher, I'm curious, what would you want your students to be aware of in the performance that you're bringing to the stage as Macbeth? With every, every piece, it's finding the truth and finding the joy. <laughs> and the truth of him is very tricky, I guess. It takes a village, too. I mean, <laughs> I always say you, you, there's so many different ways into characters, right? There's outside in, there's inside out. And with something like this, you have to get the structure and you have to get all the words in your cells before you can start to play. So for a piece like this, if you're going to do, you've got to go at it with such deep, meticulous attention to detail and language and structure before getting ahead of yourself and trying to fill it with the emotion and the psychology. And you do all the, all the work is, that you can. Read all the things. Infect your mind with articles that inspire you. Surround yourself in conversations with people about what's going on in the world and how it feeds into the play and why you're doing this play is always so important to me. Like, why through our three mouths is this piece particularly important in 2016 and how we can bring ourselves to it. For my students, I say that always, no matter what you're playing, don't play up to a character. You do have to bring that very unique sense of yourself and who your collaborators are and the vitality of why you're telling this particular story. And, you know, in light of Orlando, in light of all of this, just, just the state of our world, I do think this notion of wrong choices, you just mm. make some mm. poor choices and sometimes things cannot be undone. I mean, I feel like for us, we've only just begun, you know, now that we have the structure, now we can really start to play and let go and find where this piece lives in us and with the audiences too. It's live every time. It's a different dance every time. Are you going to tango tonight? What is this audience? Are you going to foxtrot? Right. You know, where are we? Keeps it alive. It's absolutely thrilling. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is thrilling. And even more, so, I mean, I, Hudson Valley, this, the, the tent is a very special, I don't know if you guys have gotten to experience it yet, but it's a very special place to do it. 
because you are dealing with nature and the elements and, you know, as Nance said, the wind at one point kind of becoming the predominant scene part of anything. I was going to say, I do have one question. You're talking about structure and getting the structure and understanding the words. And I just wonder if you'd help us unpack one little section of, of the speech. Yeah, did. it'll help me. Uh, I think we understand I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition. Mm -hmm. But what's the last bit of that sentence, which overleaps itself, itself and, and falls, falls on, on the other? other. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it literally, if you picture it, just kind of overwhelming itself. It fall, there's, it, it doesn't get to where it thinks it's going to go. It overshoots itself and falls on itself. It's, it, nothing comes of it, actually. It's empty. It's, it's fruitless. So when it falls on the other, the other refers to ambition? It sleeps on itself and falls on the other side devoid of of success of the goal of the goal if your goal was there it it over way over leaps itself falls on then the other side of the victory of of the actual sorry i'm holding my fist up here <laughs> you can't see the visuals i'm giving you the visuals <laughs> um, oh i think I, that's that's a brilliant image and i think i'm seeing it uh, more clearly for the first time With, i think i'm literally holding up my fist here jim if i, I can fancy seeing this this it's, if I can, if I can speculate, it seems like um, are, are you saying that there's actually an omitted word there or an implied word, and that what's missing is is side. It falls on the other side. In, in other words, on the other side of the yeah. barrier that it would oh, that it would leap. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. brilliant! I love that. But how did you interpret it? I'm curious. I, I always thought that the other meant some entity that that it fell it fell on the other individual or the I'd like to just say that I think that he, he he's just brought ambition into the fold and prior to ambition he was talking about pity uh -huh. and it's uh -huh. in, in the folio it's cap pity is capitalized and ambition is capitalized so I'm wondering if the other isn't pity oh. Mm. Oh, that's which is really empathy. interesting actually I I never thought of that but that and falls back on the other so falls back on the other side I mean the other side meaning the good meaning all those the things that are against this ambition that all of the Right. You know, so pity is certainly in there, but that's directly related textually. I mean, that's a really interesting take too. Yeah. Um, I would have thought. I would have thought that whatever the, the sentence was structured so that other was antithetical to itself. Mm -hmm. But I yeah. like. I like this interpretation better. Much much better. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Helps with the visual too, though. I gotta say. <laughs> Well, for those of us uh, who are dying to see this three-woman production of Macbeth, where and when? It's at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, which is in Cold Spring, New York. If you go to hvsf.org or, or check on Facebook, and you'll see the calendar of events. It's running in rotating rep with Measure for Measure and As You Like It. And then they run in rotating rep through the end of August. And you can easily take a train up from the city, and there's bed and breakfasts galore around up here, or spend the weekend, and it's kind of a fun getaway that's fairly close to New York. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful uh, evening, just a day trip along the Hudson Valley line. Maria Christina Oliveras and Nance Williamson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen. You're very Pleasure. welcome. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. And break a leg tonight. Thank, thank you much. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.
Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.